Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan, good things will follow. That is, until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. I think it was a few years after 9-11, they started doing it at certain you know, schools around the country. And so the University of Texas, they'd have a different player do it every week. And it was usually somebody that had a family member in the military. You know, and so they'd lead the team out of the tunnel and it'd be somebody else the next time. But then once I got to the team at Texas and Mac Brown, you know, the head coach, realized that I was in the military. He was just like, well, Nate's going to do it every game then because he actually was in the military. So it was just a tradition, you know, that I'd uh, lead the team out of the tunnel with the flag. And I did it every, every game I played in. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Nate Boyer. Nate is a former long snapper for the University of Texas Longhorns, but he's unlike any football player you've ever met. Nate volunteered as a relief worker in Sudan. He enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served in both Iraq and Afghanistan with the U.S. Special Forces. And that's all before he started playing football. People celebrate him, but he's always felt undeserving of the accolades. While people saw a hero, he saw a man with wounds. It's taken him time to heal, and during that period, Nate learned that people should be proud of their scars, both those seen and unseen. Here's Nate Boyer on Blindsided. I read your Players' Tribune piece, the one you wrote in November 2020, and I actually found it pretty difficult to read, especially the first part where you talked about when you were a kid, you didn't really feel you deserved love, or you felt guilty for being loved, and that you hated what you saw in the mirror, that you were seeing ugliness inside and out. Where do you think those feelings came from? I don't know. I mean, I think... I think our experiences have some to do, or probably a good amount to do, with the way that we see ourselves. But also, I think, I don't know, maybe some people are are inclined to have a positive or a negative self-image. <laughs> um, I, I always had an issue with fairness and injustice, not necessarily towards myself, just in general. And I think the fact, I think I, I realized at a young age, the fact that I had two loving parents you know, was born in the United States and just had opportunities. And, and life was in, in some ways, even though we didn't have a lot, it was, you know, relatively easy as compared to to others. I mean, I felt like like this guilt for, you know, having what, what I had, even when I was pretty young. It's like, I didn't do anything to deserve that. I didn't earn that in any way. And that sort of stuck with me as I as I grew. And I think that translated into feeling like, I just wasn't deserving of anything, you know, of, of, of love, of a good family, because like I said, I hadn't earned it, or at least I, have, I felt like I hadn't done anything to earn it. And, and uh, you know, guilt's a, guilt's a tough one, especially when you actually didn't do anything <laughs> uh, that should promote that feeling. And I think it just kind of, you know, it's, it, it sticks with you um, for a long time. And it certainly has, and it still does. It's something that I still often feel. And that translates into, you know, I think a, a negative self-image. Do you think that anything happened early in your life that led to that, Nate? Or do you think you were just that kind of a guy, someone who lived a lot in your head? Were you just a sensitive young man? Or did something happen early on in your life that led you to have that kind of sensitivity? I mean, I think like every kid, we all got bullied at some level, you know, at some time or made fun of or felt inadequate, insecure, whatever that may be. So yeah, there's there's certainly 
were probably things that that happened. But yeah, I definitely, I think I was, you know, the word sensitive is a tough one because I was always kind of a tough it out kid. I didn't really, I wasn't really a crier, wasn't really, you know, soft in that regard as far as sensitivity, but sensitivity also means, I think, aware, you know, and you just, you notice things, you recognize things and you feel things. And, and I definitely had that at a young age. And I think over the years, as I grew, I developed this sort of scar tissue or this uh, insensitivity that I've thrust upon myself because I felt like I shouldn't feel that way because I don't deserve to feel that way. And uh, yeah, so I, I definitely was was very much in my head. You know, I, I think about, even in, in a positive way, like I still do this today, which is crazy. I just turned 40, but I get so excited about things. I start thinking and daydreaming and I spiral uh, into this, you know, other world about you know, the potential for something. And I completely am like out of my body and not even realizing where I am. And all of a sudden I'll like catch myself and I'm like jumping around this room by myself, like flapping my hands in this other, uh, <laughs> uh, like out of body experience. And then I just like, I, I come back and all of a sudden I'm like, what, what am I doing? And I think at a young age, I didn't realize that it was okay to to do those things. And I, I definitely got in my own head about it and was, was just worried um, something was wrong with me. And, you know, so that's something that I, I often think about now. And, you know, I feel bad for that kid looking back, really bad for that kid because it wasn't fair what he did to himself. Nate, who were some of the people that were around you when you were growing up, when you were really young, who you could have talked to? Perhaps you didn't feel you could talk to them. But if there were people around that looking back, you could have talked to about some of your worries, some of the fears you had, do you have any sense of why you didn't speak up? Yeah, I had plenty of opportunities, strong influences. I mean, my parents are two of them that were always there. They always would have, you know, bent an ear. Um, maybe it was pride, not wanting to admit that I felt a certain way. Uh, but also I, that kind of goes back to that guilt thing, like, feeling like I don't deserve to, like, what am I upset about? What am I pouting about? I got nothing to worry about. I got clothes on my back. I got food, shelter, parents that love me. Like, you have no reason to complain, so you better not do it. And so I didn't. I didn't talk about it, you know, didn't uh, didn't share it with anybody. And, you know, for, for years and years and years, really. And uh, that stuff doesn't just go away if you ignore it. It just compounds. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was something that just started at a young age and built. And I had plenty of opportunities, plenty of mentors, people I looked up to in my life that I could have talked to and shared this with. It just, I thought it was bad. I thought it was, a, you know, almost an evil thing inside me. So like, why would I want to share that with people? I, I'm really grateful that you're actually talking about this because certainly you're not alone. I think just about every kid goes through times like that when they feel odd or weird or different and and they wonder what's normal and not very many people talk about that time and sometimes it really does creep into your adult life and follow you for a long time there's a word for um what a lot of adults feel when they don't feel they're worthy which is being an imposter or imposter syndrome so i i want to ask you a little bit more about that later but i'm really grateful to you for actually putting to words what is such a, a common experience because most people do not talk about it. It's you, yeah, I appreciate that. It's hard to put into words. I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here struggling right now, like trying to figure out how to communicate it. Because it's it's not uh, it's not an easy thing to to like transfer from your mind. I think to <laughs> to articulate feelings are really hard in general. I think to communicate to to others and relating to certain feelings is is also tough because, you know, in my opinion, we'll never fully understand or even in some ways partially understand what it feels like to be anybody but yourself, you know, and to think any way than you think. And I know we're, I know we're similar in so many ways, but I've just heard people explain something like this and I can't grasp that. And, and I feel the same way and being misunderstood is a frustrating thing. Like everybody wants to be understood, I think. And so it's not easy to do. It's not easy to... Um, to share your feelings for me, less about at this point in my life, less about the fear of what people are going to think and more about just the difficulty of putting that into, into words. One of the things you mentioned was 
your sense that you wanted to save the world all by yourself, but that feeling that way was very lonely, exhausting, impossible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I I think that was my way of coping with feeling insignificant was trying to do all these big things and, um, you know, wanted to be a hero. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to feel like I made a difference in other people's lives and that I mattered. And if, that if I wasn't here, the world would not be the same, you know, the world would, would not spin, uh, on its axis as it should. <laughs> so I think that that was my way of dealing with it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's way worse ways to deal with it. At the same time, always focusing on the next thing, the next big thing, you know, trying to fix every problem that's not your problem to fix, um, trying to fight every fight that's not your fight. It, uh, it wears you down and it is exhausting in the sense of a lot of those, those, those battles are, are, they're not even something to win. You know, there's not even, there's nothing to conquer sometimes. And, and then it was just, it'd leave you with this emptiness when you didn't, or when I didn't complete that mission as I thought I should, even if there was a level of success, it's like, well, that's not what I set out to do though. I set out to do X and Y was the result. You know, I get so fixated on, on this result and it's disappointing. You disappoint yourself. Um, you feel like you disappoint other people and you actually probably don't. And then you just, you just have to find something else. You know, it's like a drug. You have to find something else to chase, to feel that way. And it's like, you're just worried. You know, you just, you got this anxiety that just won't go away because you feel like you're never doing enough. And that feeling of never doing enough, I don't think it goes away. It's like often people that accumulate large amounts of wealth, they could have billions and it's not enough. It's not enough. It's like more, more, more. You just get addicted to this more thing. And, and that's, that's how it felt with me in doing things, you know, in actions I was taking. It's something that it doesn't go away until you can take a step back and like recognize the rut that you're in. Hey, Diane, as I'm listening to Nate, I can't help but think of all the pressure that kids put on themselves. For all the parents listening out there, is there something they can do to help their child? Like, what would you tell them to get their kid to open up to them about the pressures of the things that they're going through? Well, I don't think that what Nate talked about is particularly abnormal. We all have these internal dialogues. What was most interesting for me listening to Nate speak is how much awareness he had about that internal dialogue, how much memory he had of that internal dialogue. But what he spoke about, I think is generally true that kids don't often share that. They have those internal thoughts. They have lots of worries around different things, but they often either don't know how to articulate it. They're not sure if they should. What do they talk about? What do they share? Will this be seen as them being different, especially as they get a little bit older? I don't think that really how you help your kids would be specific to that internal dialogue that he talked about, more about what kind of environment is the healthiest to help to support your kids to grow up well. I would say that creating a loving, nurturing, non-chaotic environment is absolutely the best thing that you can do for your kids, that they know that you love them unconditionally, that you try to keep chaos at a minimum as far as really stressful chaos, like parental fights or, you know, a lot of issues around money. It's not that your kids shouldn't see you fall down or stub your toe or get upset sometimes, or even to get in a fight with your partner, but that you also have to show them that these things can get better, that you can get through these things. That's how they build resilience. That's how they realize that they'll be able to tolerate those same kind of stressors later in life. One of the most important things that I talk to parents about is actually talking to your kids every day. And by talking to your kids every day, I mean, put your phone down, look them in the eye and give them, even if it's just a few minutes, they know when you're not listening. And so I stopped a long time ago saying to my kids, how was your day? Because what answer do you get, Corey? Good. Fine. Fine. The same one every time, <laughs> every time. So what I started asking was, tell me about your day. Putting my phone down, looking them in the eye and saying, I want to hear about your day. Tell me about your day. Now, 
they started to actually expect that I would ask. And before long, I was like, more information than I want to know. They were telling me too much. (laughs) But it just opened the door to letting them know, I want to hear anything you got for me. Yeah, communication. I'm, I'm open. Nate left home wanting to prove himself, but he quickly found himself adrift, floating through life, figuratively and literally. He found a job on a fishing boat in Southern California. Then he trained briefly as a firefighter. Next was a job at a deli, then a move to try and make it in Hollywood as an actor. He partied a lot. Then 9-11 happened. Yeah, 9-11, um, uh, I remember getting a phone call from my mom, actually, at uh, you know crack of dawn because we were on Pacific time. And she just said, you know, turn the TV on. And so I flipped on the TV. I had this little tiny 19-inch uh, <laughs> TV. And I lived in this little studio with a Murphy bed. And, um, you know, it's way back in the day. I was 20 years old. And turned it on. And, you know, I see both the towers, you know, in, in flames. I can't remember if one of them had uh, already fallen or not. But, yeah, it was just like this total shock I, I couldn't, I couldn't really process what I was seeing. And I was like, how does, how does something like this happen? And, you know, in 2001, and it was just, uh, it was very bizarre, but it was, it was also like later, I remember later that day or the next day, there were like in Los Angeles, there were like this, there was this parade that went down the street, uh, in front of my place. And it was like people dressed in red, white, and blue with American flags and like, you know, it kind of unified us in a weird way. I mean, we do a good job as a country we have anyway, unifying around these tragedies, whether it's a natural disaster or something like that. Um, so I was proud of that. You know, that was a good feeling. And, uh, and I didn't, it didn't make me join the military right away, but it got me thinking about it, you know, but nine 11 kind of got me thinking more globally and like sort of, you know, what's going on in the world. Like I, I was living in, in my own bubble and just not really thinking about those things. And, and it definitely, uh, it, it changed me quite a bit. It didn't happen all at once though. Change takes time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this was in uh, 2004. And so it's a few years after 9-11 and I had traveled quite a bit at that time. I would work and, you know, all kinds of odd jobs and save my money. And then I would just take off for a month or two and you know, travel in some part of the world and, and just trying to explore. And that was great. I was learning a lot and it was really opening my, my mind and my eyes to a lot of things, but it didn't have sort of a purpose or a mission behind it and definitely no element of service. So I was back home in the States. I just got back from a trip. I was in, I was in uh, Europe and I got back home to the States and I remember I was hanging out with some buddies and, you know, I was partying a lot at that time in my life. And And I, you know, I was, we were back at my buddy's house and he had this magazine on his coffee table. There's a Time Magazine article and the cover of it said, uh, The Tragedy in Sudan. I pick it up and flip through the pages and I'm reading almost more just looking at the the images that struck me the most. Jim Nakwe, a prolific war photographer, had taken these incredible images that were heartbreaking, but just like jaw dropping at the same time. And then I started reading and I was, you know, reading about how most of the refugee camps out there um, were, were just getting full and there was, there was new ones popping up all the time and they were short on volunteers and this genocide, you know, had killed 300,000 people in this Darfur region of Sudan. And, and I just was, once again, almost like the 9-11 moment, I was just like, how is this possible at this time in our history? Like, how is this stuff still happening? And so I called every NGO, Doctors Without Borders and Child Fund and uh, asked if there was any way I could go over there and volunteer and help. And they all said, well, you don't have a college degree or any special skills. We don't really know what you'd be able to do. And I just said, oh, there's got to be something. I mean, I'm reading about how you guys are so understaffed and I'll fly myself over there. I just want to help. And they just said, I'm sorry, it's not that simple. And uh, I just didn't accept that as a, an answer. <laughs> so uh, I went through the the neighboring country of Chad, where the refugee camps were built along that border of Sudan. I went through their consulate, obtained a 60-day visa, and then went to the AAA in Burbank and bought a plane ticket to Jemena, which is the capital of Chad, and just flew over there and you know, said, I'll, I'll just figure it out when I get there. So I flew over there by myself, 
I talked my way into onto a, a UN uh, HCR, uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, uh, UNHCR plane, and they happened to have an extra seat, and they believed me that I was supposed to be there. I just kind of fibbed my way out there. I got on that plane, you know, f- flew across the Sahara. They dr- <laughs> dropped us off. I I didn't have a contact out there, but I just kind of talked my way around, figuring out who needed help, and ended up. I got into this Catholic Relief Services tent after getting interrogated and, and all this stuff because they were like, what are you doing out here? Who are you? And I was like, man, I don't have anything. I have <laughs> this like satchel, you know, uh, that's got a toothbrush, malaria pills, and they change a boxer shorts and that's pretty much it, you know. I'm just here to help. And uh, they put me to work, you know, and, and it was great. Like that was one of the first times I really felt like I belonged in a weird way. I mean, I'm sleeping on the ground with these people, you know, out in the, in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And I just felt purposeful. I felt useful, you know, and I'm just, during the days, I'm just helping build the campsites and I'm playing soccer with the kids and assisting in the medical center and passing out food and stuff like that. And just very simple things. But uh, I thought it was really interesting too that the people were so enamored with this American, because nobody there was American. Uh, well, not nobody, but I didn't meet anybody else that was American when I was over there. And they uh, they just wanted to hear about the United States, you know. And so I would tell them, as, you know, what I knew about it and you know what I experienced back home. And they just were like, they thought that was incredible. And I kind of developed this patriotism uh, over there because of how much they would have given everything to spend a day in the states. And then. My last week there, I actually got malaria, and this family put me up. They wouldn't take anything from me. They they lived in this you know mud hut compound with all their extended family, and they put me in this room on this cot and were nursing me back to health. I took my malaria pills. It just didn't work. Uh, I got it either way. So um, anyway, they're nursing me back to health, and uh, they put this little radio by the bed, and the, the radio had a Bob Marley cassette tape. So I listened to Bob Marley on both sides of the cassette tape like three times and I love Bob Marley but I was I wanted to hear something else at that point so I started flipping through the radio stations and the only one that came through was the BBC uh, radio and at that time was the second battle of Fallujah which was one of the biggest uh, battles in the global war on terrorism and I'm like hearing the play-by-play of these marines that were going over there and you know fighting for those that can't fight for themselves and I just felt compelled to 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 do that. Like that was going to be the next thing I did. And, uh, so I came home and knew I was going to join the military at that point. And, you know, and not until I found out what the special forces did and the, you know, uh, that, that mission working alongside indigenous forces. That's when I knew like, this is what I meant to do. I, I'm supposed to be a green beret. And, and so, yeah, that, that trip absolutely led me to the military. And it was, a it was probably still to this day. That was like the biggest that trip was the biggest shift in my life, I think. I worked for the Canadian Forces as a civilian for several years in an uh, occupational stress injury clinic. I met some incredible men and women. And what struck me was how most of the people I met were superstars, moving up in the ranks. They were, they were leaders. And then were suddenly uh, exposed to a trauma that absolutely changed their lives in every possible way. So. How did your experiences as a member of the Special Forces impact your life and your way of looking at the world? Um, I mean, yeah, it had a, a great impact uh, serving in the Special Forces uh, because, I mean, first of all, our motto is De Oppresso Liber, which means to free the oppressed. And, you know, when we go overseas, we go to Iraq, we go to Afghanistan, all of our missions are by, with, and through indigenous forces. So we go to Iraq, we are not only training, but we're often living <laughs> living with or very near and then fighting alongside Iraqi forces. And we've got a different patch on our shoulder um, and wear a different flag, but you develop a brotherhood, you know, and to hear these people's stories, you know, and, and Iraq and Afghan, Iraqis and Afghans are so different, which is also very interesting to me. But when you hear, you know, these men's stories and you talk to them and, and kind of get to know them, um, it's just, it's interesting how similar, you know, we can be and, and we laugh at the same stuff. Um, 
it's very different. I mean, our resources and education level and training is very different from what they have access to, but you know, they figure it out. They, they figure out a way to make that work. And a lot of them are so grateful for the time that we spent with them. And uh, we know what we as Americans poured into um, trying to help those people. And, uh, you know, it's, and those are, it's a very debatable, it's a whole nother ball of wax, very debatable topic. Should we be here? Should we be there? What was, you know, was it a justified situation? When I look at it from the individual human perspective and most of the people I came across and most of the people that I worked with, you know, we were trying to do the right thing. We were trying to, um, we were trying to help them. We were trying to, I guess, I don't want to say liberate the countries because that's not necessarily what it was, but it was, it's like giving them an opportunity at some level to at least see the hope that could be. And I I think a lot of them recognized, you know, what a lot of Americans, a lot of the Americans that were going over there were sort of giving up to be there. And they were very grateful for that. And and although, you know, culturally and, and our customs are so different, you know, often just from the, the basis of religion, we were able to put that stuff aside, especially when you know you're getting shot at. And it's also here in the military where Nate met Sergeant Brad Keys. Yeah, Brad is yeah he was he was my best friend, and I met him um, just a, maybe a month before my first deployment to Iraq. I got to this special forces team, and of course, Brad was giving me more crap than anybody else on the team, and you know <laughs> he was just one of those guys. But also, he's always the guy that would, no matter what, if you needed help with something, you know, he would help you. He was he was always stepping out of his lane to assist others and just be there for, be there for you. He was extremely reliable, funny, um, tough, um, but also he had such a he had such a heart for humanity and for people. And he wouldn't act like he did. You know, he's one of these guys that act like he's you know this t- this tough guy, but he was he was yeah. a softy, and. I remember, I mean, we were we were almost on every mission, at least many of them. We would sort of, two of us would um, kind of go, whether we're clearing uh, clearing buildings or whatever we're doing, we seem to always kind of gravitate towards each other and have each other's back. And, you know, I'm not going to tell a bunch of war stories, but, but I will say after one, uh, you know, one night we'd been out and we got back to the team house and uh, we would you know, build these build a little campfire on the roof and we're up there sitting around the fire and just talking about life back home, you know, and he told me about, you know, he, he'd been married uh, before when he was really young and didn't work out. And he, you know, he'd said, well, I'm never going to get married again. And then he met this woman, Lisa, and they started dating. And, um, after a while she said, you know, I have a son and, you know, I'd like you to meet him. And so Brad went and met Ethan, her son, and Ethan um, was a child with severe disabilities, a cerebral palsy, palsy and autism. And, you know, he's nonverbal, but uh, he's like the sweetest kid in the world. I mean, well, he's not a kid anymore. Ethan's a man now. But yeah. at the time, he was a kid. And, you know, Brad told me over there, he was like, man, like, I just knew when I met, like, I already liked Lisa. When I met Ethan, um, I just like, I felt so connected to that family. And he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, I fell in love with Ethan almost before I fell in love with Lisa, you know, because it was just like, I knew that I was meant to be his dad. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he and Lisa got married and, you know, he adopted Ethan and, um, and then unfortunately in 2012, he he passed away while I was in college playing uh, at Texas. Sergeant Keyes died of injuries sustained during a military training accident in Arizona. He was only 33 years old. Um, and that was tough, you know, I, I uh, really tough because yeah. it was like, it, it always seems to be like the worst things happen to the best people. And it was just, you know, there was a lot of anger there. I can't even imagine um, from, you know, what Lisa was going through and felt, but, and I had just talked to him the night before on the phone, you know, and, uh, anyway, she, she reached out and said, Hey, do you want to be, um, or would you be a pallbearer at his funeral? And I said, of course. So, I mean, this was the middle of football season. We had a bowl game coming up. I mean, we're playing in the Alamo bowl in like a week. So I told Mac Brown's our head coach at the time. I told him what happened and, you know, they shared it with the team and they said they were going to dedicate the game to Brad, uh, which was really cool. 
And, uh, you know, he let me go out and do that. So I went to North Carolina and, you know, carried his casket. And it was like this, I just remember this moment while I was carrying it, thinking of like all the times he sort of carried me through stuff, helped me through stuff. Wow. And so it was nice to be able to to carry him for once, even though it was not the most ideal circumstances. And after the funeral, I flew back to to Texas and, you know, we played in the Alamo Bowl and we played like crap for about three and a half quarters. And then the mid fourth quarter, we turned it on and, you know, all of a sudden good things started happening and we came back and won the game. And so that was really special. I mean, I remember after that game, that was probably the, the coolest win ever just because for me, just because it was, you know, it was just all about Brad and, and I felt like, you know, we did a good job playing possum for a while and then honoring him at the end. So yeah. I can't even imagine what that must've been like to carry your friend. I, I just, I can't even, uh, you know, it just sounds like he was an incredible person. And what I love about the story too is, is that it sounds like you talk about him being one of the toughest guys on the outside and seemed it, but he opened up to you and you opened up to him and you guys shared stuff, which is, you know, is, is so cool. And, and just with men in general, we need that friend, you know, we need that somebody that we can open up to and, and talk to. And I think that's a really cool part of the story. And, and he just sounded like an incredible human being. Yeah. He definitely was. And, uh, you know, he still is. I mean, I know he's gone, but yeah. there's so many people, including myself, that try to live on in, in Brad's honor and people like Brad. And so I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of things that I've, I've done in my life um, that maybe I wouldn't have done, you know, if he hadn't passed. So I'm not going to say that I'm glad he's gone. But, no. you know, I mean, I think the best way to to honor those that we've lost is by the way that we live our lives, you know, the choices we make and, and maybe even sometimes living out their dreams. I mean, there's so many of those people that had dreams that were never realized. And so if we're not following ours and, and living that type of life, maybe that's a bit offensive <laughs> to those that, uh, that aren't here anymore, you know, that wish they could have that opportunity. You really learn to appreciate uh, people. I think more, all the money in the world's not going to bring him back, but, you know, you can love around the people around you. You can learn from, you can live the best life that you can. Yep. That's exactly right. I, That's all you I can think, do. Nate, what you said is exactly what I talk to my patients about. The fact that when you're in deep pain, when you're grieving for someone that you actually honor their memory by living your best life, because that's what someone who loves you wants for you. And that was a trauma, that loss. And as a rule, do not ask people who have had military trauma about the details, but I have no doubt at all that you experienced trauma being in Iraq and Afghanistan and then the loss of your dear friend. I'd like to understand a little bit more how you've managed through that. How have you been able to endure and, and move forward in your life with those traumas? Because I know that PTSD is an illness of accumulation and there's often the straw that broke the camel's back, but most people do not develop PTSD. And there's a lot of, of content that goes into why and one person does and one person doesn't. There's a lot of shame amongst military members, I think, sometimes. Why did I end up with this and someone else didn't? And people who don't have a problem, why don't I and they're suffering? How have you endured your trauma? I think it's how you look at it. Um, first of all, there's a, there's a movement you know, happening now to sort of remove the D from, from PTSD, you know, because post-traumatic stress, it's not a disorder. It, it's a very normal way of, I don't want to say coping. It's a very normal way of reacting to uh, those situations, you know, especially at war. But even if you were in a car accident, you know, you're in a car accident, a traumatic one, maybe, maybe you didn't even get hurt, but something that scared you enough, or maybe you even saw one. The next time you hear screeching tires or like the crash of a vehicle and all that, like you, you react, or at least I do, you know, react in a certain way. My body um, senses that stuff coming and it, it messes with you, you know, cause for me, like sounds are very, or something that I'm very sensitive to. And if I know where they're coming from, I know what's going on, you know, like I can sit there and watch fireworks and it's fine. But like, if I hear even a dish drop in a restaurant, and shatter like I jump for a split second you know and it's like pretty quickly I come back to where I am and just realize you know that's all that was but like there's other people that um it takes them down a whole nother path you know what I mean and it could be a little thing and so like 
I think we just have to understand and respect that that's a, that's a normal thing based on what they went through because also there's plenty of people that went to war that experienced far worse than I did. You know, I think I was very lucky in a lot of ways. So like, like the, all that stuff is understandable, but also like you just got to find a way to be grateful for it and understand that it's made you who you are. Being proud of, of, of your scars is a thing and, you know, not being ashamed of, of feeling that way. And when you go through something uh, heavy like that and you experience something uh, traumatic, like you're going to have residual effects. Like that's just the way that is. I think everybody does at some level. And so that's, that's it. I mean, just, I think acknowledging that it's okay and very normal to feel the way that you feel, but also seeing like understanding and, and recognizing that, Hey, I survived that, you know, and I'm still here. That didn't, that thing didn't, uh, you know, didn't kill me. And, and I'm, and so I, I'm here for a reason and I need to like use that moving forward and sort of, you know, fuel me in some sense. Diane, should we reframe the way we look at PTSD or as Nate says, when you remove the D post-traumatic stress, it just seems like even though it's a terrible thing that's happened to you, there's always some good that can come from it. You know, I think people really struggle with that idea. And I was really glad that Nate brought this up because no one asks for the trauma. No one wants the trauma. And for many people, they're haunted forever, for years by the trauma they experience. But having treated this for my entire career, I know that out of the most horrible things, good things do come. And that's hard to put your brain around when the most horrible things can happen. But it is the reality that out of life experience, change always comes. And sometimes out of the most difficult, most painful, most traumatizing life experiences, really important, beautiful things can come. And I really think that that's part of the reason that people are able to recover is when they're able to, they can't change what's happened in the past. You can't change that the trauma occurred, but you can over time change the impact that trauma has on you and also to change the way you look at it from the perspective as Nate has of, yeah, that was awful, but look at these incredible things that have come from that. It's empowering. how does a person know if they have PTSD? Well, I think it's important then to get that professional help. Go see your family doctor, go see your nurse practitioner. If they don't have the answers, they should refer you to someone else, a, a great psychologist, a great clinical counselor, a psychiatrist who's able to help them to understand what has happened, what are the symptoms they're having. And, and again, making sure that what they're experiencing is impairing their functioning. There's lots of people that are exposed to trauma. And you know what the most common outcome of experiencing a traumatic event is? Absolutely nothing. Most people recover from their trauma. Nate certainly had a lot going on in his life at the time. He'd enrolled at the University of Texas and successfully walked on to one of the most iconic football programs in America. He'd never played football before. And if that's not enough, He continued to serve in the special forces during his summer breaks. He'd practiced long snapping when not on patrol in places all over the world, places like Greece, army camps in Afghanistan. And then he'd return to Texas and run out onto the field carrying the U.S. flag. So I think it was a few years after 9-11, they started doing it at certain schools around the country. And so the University of Texas was having, they'd have a different player do it every week. And it was usually somebody that had a family member in the military, you know, and so they'd lead the team out of the tunnel and it'd be somebody else the next time. But then once I got to the team at Texas and Mac Brown, you know, the head coach realized that I was in the military, he was just like, well, Nate's going to do it every game then because he actually was in the military. So yeah. it was just a tradition, you know, that I, I would uh, lead the team out of the tunnel with the flag. And yeah, and so I did it every, every game I played in. Uh, unless I was captain, there was a couple times I was captain on the, you know, for the coin toss, and so we had to be over by midfield before the the team ran out of the tunnel. But every other game, you know, I had the honor to do that, and it was cool. It actually would sort of settle me in because, I mean, you know, Corey, I don't care who you are. M- maybe some people feel no nerves, but every game, like pregame, I'm nervous. You know, I'm nervous, and it's oh, like, yeah. it's like I don't care if it's a a little game against a team that we know we're just gonna destroy, or if it's you know. Texas versus Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. It didn't matter. Like every game, I felt those nerves. And uh, 
but eighty thousand people, man, like that yeah. must have just been yeah incredible. I think it's a I think one hundred and one now at a UT one hundred one hundred and two oh, wow. in that stadium. It's it's insane, but yeah, like so you feel all that. But it, this that that moment would kind of settle me in because it took my mind off of the game. You know, and I would force myself to like, all right, what are you doing right now? You're you're running out with this flag. What is that representing to you? What is that representing to some of these people? And it's almost like taking that first hit out there, you know, or probably, you know, a first slap shot or whatever it is for you that would like settle you into the to the game, you know. Um, and then you just feel like, all right, this is where I, you know, this is I'm in the flow now. That moment would happen then for me, which was good because and then after sorry, then afterwards yeah. they'd call you grandpa and bring you right back yeah. down. Is that that's <laughs> very that true nickname? yeah that is true i was i mean i was you know i was 10 years older than the other freshmen in the locker room when i was a freshman so it was yeah i had all kinds of fun nicknames but yeah old man <laughs> sergeant sergeant slaughter grandpa uh, yeah captain uh, america's a good what one what a great time though. good guys though i'm sure oh no it was awesome nick continued to train as a long snapper he figured that if he made it this far why stop here he landed a tryout with the Seattle Seahawks. They'd heard of his story, but they'd never seen him snap in person. And when they did, they were so impressed that they signed him as a free agent. Yeah. So that was in 2015 was, was when I was with the, with the Seahawks, you know, and I was on the, you know, I only played in one NFL game and being on the sidelines during the national anthem, um, I, I wept, you know, it was a, a, a lot of yeah. emotions leading to that moment. I mean, I was, I was a 34 year old rookie and, uh, my past, just like my childhood, how I felt about myself, all these things coupled with my time in the military and then going back to college and, you know, the recognition of how hard I did work to get where I got, I did make a lot of sacrifices and I put a lot into that. And just to get that opportunity was incredible. So I felt I felt a lot of emotion in that, but then when the anthem played, I just lost it. And that was one of those things where it was a different, two different types of tears. You know, it was like this pride and sort of a, an emotional release that I had zero control over in that moment. I just, there's nothing I could have done to stop that. And, uh, and, you know, before the game, I was asked to lead the team out of the tunnel with the American flag. And so I did that. And, you know, me, the, the because of my experiences, the, the flag, uh, the anthem; those symbols are very sp special to me. I mean, when I, I've carried casket a casket with my my best friend in it, that was draped in an American flag. You know what I mean? But not everyone has the same connection to the U.S. flag. Some view it through a very different lens. Um, Colin Kaepernick and many other people have a totally different relationship to those symbols, and they don't have that same kind of emotional connection. And, and that's not wrong. You know, they're not wrong for feeling that way. It's just that's what they experience that's the world that they lived in you know and uh because i didn't feel those ways before the military um it's not that i felt they were um, maybe oppressive symbols or something like that but i just i didn't have that same connection and so you know this was in the middle of the last election cycle and uh, you know it was hillary clinton versus donald trump and it was um, a very divisive time and still is in a lot of ways um when colin started sitting on the bench in protest of uh, police brutality uh, during the anthem, you know, it created quite a stir and the message quickly got lost. And it was just like, oh, he's, you know, he's just, what he's doing is that like anti-military, you know, somehow that became a thing, even though in his first interview, he said very clearly that uh, he's got great respect for men and women in uniform, you know, and then there was things that that he did say though, and you know, socks that he wore and all these things that, that uh, you know, were hurtful to people as well. So like, there is that side of that. I mean, he, he did say, I'm not gonna stand for the flag of a country that oppresses black people and people of color. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people out there that whether they did something like I did or not, that, that feel very differently about, you know, what that flag actually stands for. And so that could, you know, that could be offensive to them. And you, you can say all day what your protest is about, but you know we don't get to choose how people perceive things necessarily. And uh, so it was just, uh, you know, it was just one of these things that it kind of dumped gasoline on a fire. Nate was still sorting through his feelings about what was playing out on the field. Soon enough, it seemed every news outlet wanted to hear those thoughts. What would the veteran, a guy who's wept 
at the playing of the national anthem think of this protest? I got reached out to by CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all these cable news networks that wanted to, they wanted to, I, I assume they wanted to have me on and then debate with somebody else about why he was right or why he's wrong. And, and it's, to me, it was just not about being right or wrong. I mean, it's not a, uh, that's not what the, the protest was about. It was about getting people to listen and hopefully create change in a positive, uh, create positive change. I mean, all of us should want our country to do better, even if it's the greatest country in the world. We should always want to do better. To me, that's what America is all about. It's supposed to be all about anyway. And so I ended up writing this letter through the Army Times because they reached out a couple of times and they told me I could write whatever I wanted. Uh, so I did it as I wrote it as an open letter to Colin and I just kind of explained my experiences and feelings but also said, hey, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know what it's like to be you. And, you know, I think uh, what you're doing is courageous in a lot of ways. And at the end of the day, I, when you join the military, you take the oath to defend the Constitution, which includes the First Amendment and freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And that's what he was exercising. So I fought for his right to do that. I, I don't have to agree with it or even like what he's doing. Um, but I should respect it if that's what I fought for. And it's done in a peaceful way. And you know, and he wants our country to do better. That's patriotic in some ways. And so I wrote that letter, Colin read it. He was inspired by it. The, the thing went pretty viral and uh, he ended up uh, reaching out and wanted to meet. So I met with him the next day down in San Diego. They were playing the Chargers in their final preseason game. And we met in the lobby of the team hotel just a few hours before kickoff, sat down with Eric Reed, uh, who had joined us. And we just talked about all of these things. You know, and uh, and I wanted to hear about his experiences too. And you know, he kind of talked about you know why he was doing what he was doing, and you know, confirmed again that this is not like a anti-military thing. And in fact, Nate, do you think there's another way I could protest that won't offend people in the military? And I I said no. I don't think there's anything you could do that's not going to offend some people. That's just the way that is. I said, but for me. You know, and I don't speak for the veteran community. I just speak for myself. I think being alongside your teammates is the most important thing. There's a way we can, you can do that, you know? And he said, well, I'm committed to not standing until I see, you know, things change. And I said, all right, well, I think taking a knee is probably the only other option that makes logistical sense. <laughs> and uh, to me, yeah. you know, kneeling is a respectful act. I mean, people take a knee to pray, propose to their future spouse. When a player on the field is hurt, often the other teammates will take a knee out of respect. And when I go to Arlington to visit my buddy, uh, I take a knee in front of his you know, grave to pay respect. So, and he agreed, he thought that was actually more powerful. So that's that night he, he took a knee during the anthem alongside his teammates. And I, I stood next to him and some of the fans booed, uh, which, was, which was weird. But uh, you know, I thought that was more disrespectful than anybody kneeling, you know, hearing that. And, uh, and that's sort of, you know, where, where that came from, but it was just, it was just out of two guys having a conversation, much like in a locker room about something that we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on every point, but you know, we've just were respectful and listened and Colin was willing to make a pretty big adjustment in that moment. It feels to me that you did something that we're not doing very well in either country, which is listening. And you, you spoke about social media and the fact is that that's just, uh, an opportunity for a very small number of people to be cruel a lot of the time and stop listening. So I'm not a fan of social media, I must say. So it's not a place I spend much time at all. And that's because I do think that it's a lot of talk and no listening. And I'm wondering, because you did get caught up in what was a social media firestorm, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I learned quickly to not take everything personal, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and understand that most of these, especially the negative comments is probably a projection from what that person feels about themselves, you know, or a projection of their own unhappiness towards, towards me. The, the most hurtful ones were, were guys and people that I served with, you know, that call me a disgrace to the Green Beret and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it, it probably hurts the most coming from, and I will say this is like your teammates, the guys that you, like you said, you, you, you fought with, they're your teammates and, and guys that you, you stood beside that didn't really understand or didn't really bother digging into the story or whatever. And then, you know, now they're firing back at you. And for me, that's probably what would be the most painful is your peers. Yeah, it was, but I will say a lot of those guys have, 
circled back since then, you know, oh, and said, not really apologize. We don't, we're not really great at apologizing, <laughs> but, but, but more, I think it's almost an apology by, by communicating with me again and kind of, you know, talking about other stuff and, and just kind of being open. And, and some of them straight up have, have said, you know, I, 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 uh, I felt this way and, uh, but I didn't really understand the whole story. And now that I'm seeing why you did what you did, like I can respect that, you know, even though they may still completely disagree. So you led them to listen, which is remarkable because I, I think both of you, you and Colin Kaepernick were courageous in having that conversation. And I think it's the point of courage sort of provokes courage. Um, I appreciate it. I don't know. How, <laughs> he was a lot more courageous in that moment. In, in that time than me, that, for sure. Well, I, I think given your experience, and that's really where I wanted to take you next, was the thing that I, I get from you right from the start is that you're a guy with social purpose. Even as a kid, when you were inside your brain, you're thinking, you know, do I really deserve this? And I have so much. And then that leads you to Darfur. It leads you to join the military. Then you're standing behind Colin Kaepernick. I just want to bring you back to what we started with, which was saving the world and how it's lonely and exhausting and impossible. But I don't think that you can change your essence. Nate, you're a guy who wants to save the world. How have you matured in that so that it doesn't become that lonely, exhausting, impossible role that you have? Um, the biggest thing is realizing that I don't have to do it alone. Like it's actually more powerful and easier to do with others, you know? So sharing, sharing that with other people, sharing that, those experiences. Cause yeah, you're right. I, I, I don't just want to turn my whole life inward now and not still do these things. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't think you can actually, Nate, I think it's you. We just right, have to, right. we have to own, this is me. I like to help people and yeah. you are a carer and a giver. So you've leaned in on that, but are you healthier leaning in on, on it now? Yeah. Cause I also like, it's not only definitely healthier, but it's not only like I don't have to do this alone, but like, I don't have to do this right now. Like, you know what I mean? Like I can do this when it makes the most sense. And I, I, I don't have to be doing the most and the biggest and the hardest all the time. You know, sometimes I can just uh, relax and let other people do it. You know, there's, cause a lot of people want to do that. I don't have to be the only one and I don't have to, I don't always have to win. You know, I have this obsession with winning. I think that's a very American thing. You know, we're competitive. We don't want to lose. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. Um, that's a hard thing to do. And I, but I think the more that I've sort of accepted that, it makes things a lot easier. Um, and I just can sort of, you know, relax in that. And it's not like, it's not as though I don't still have those anxieties and fears and worries. Like every day something comes up and I just, I feel, I'll have feel for a bit like, oh man, I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing this right or you know, I'm gonna look stupid. Like all those things are still there. It's like, but you've been called like Captain America. How do you deal with that? Like how, Captain America, that's a pretty big, uh, <laughs> pretty big burden to carry. My goodness, how do you deal with that? Uh, I'm. I just know I'm not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I know I'm definitely not. I think there's an expectation, probably a bigger one that I've put on myself. Uh, for who I need to be and what I need to do. Maybe there's a bit of, of that from other people as well. And that's all right. Like I'm still, I'm still going to keep on to your point, Diane, I'm still going to keep on doing things. I'm not just going to rest on my laurels and, you know, cruise for the, you know, the next 40 years. But, uh, you know, it's just a different mindset, you know, just, just sort of being okay with who I am first. If I can't love myself, I can't love anybody else. And I can't, uh, let myself be loved. And if I'm not doing that, I'm just not going to be happy. And, and if I'm not happy, I'm not going to be the most optimal saver of the world, right? <laughs> I'm honestly not quite sure how to end this episode other than to say that talking with Nate was one of the most enriching experiences of my life. What do you think he teaches us about mental health, post-traumatic stress, resilience, and everything he's learned about life too. I think Nate really encapsulates the we're all on our own journey kind of approach to life. This is a really interesting guy and so many levels of experience and, and growth that was demonstrated just with this short discussion that we had. 
I think that he probably popped out of the womb on the resilient side, <laughs> right? He was, rather than being sort of characterologically or from a temperament perspective, really vulnerable, he, he was a pretty resilient guy. He had a lot going on in his head, however, and I'm sure that he had a lot of early life experiences that have really shaped him. But what he demonstrated was resilience, a drive to make himself better through supporting other people. I think he ex was exposed to some really significant trauma in his life and managed to use those experiences to grow rather than turning inward and, and being really harder on himself. He actually grew from those experiences, which I think is truly aspirational. And for me, the thing that I took away from this that really was heartening was again and again demonstrating the power of listening. And I really don't think we listen to each other enough. I don't think we listen to our kids enough. I don't think we listen to each other in politics, to our partner enough. And he demonstrated again and again during this discussion how important and valuable it is to listen to each other. Did you say something? I wasn't listening. <laughs> so Nate believes any, anything is possible. That's, that's how he lives his life. But anything is possible looks differently for different people. So when I'm listening to Nate, he just inspires me and gives me energy to get out there and do any, anything I can and, and anything I want. But there are people that are struggling out there that not that their limitations are, are where they're at, but what would Nate's experience relate for them? How, how can that relate to them? Well, there's no doubt that Nate is an aspirational kind of guy that most people are not going to end up playing, walking onto a, a, a field, a football field in university and making the team, let alone being on an NFL team to actually play for the Seahawks. This is not a normal path, but we tend to focus on those big wins, those incredible highlights. And he had a lot of them in his life, but he's also very much a human being. We tend to do that, don't we? That when we have a hero, we see the heroics they've managed to their achievements that they've reached. But we also have to think about all the hard work, all the time and effort, and also all the failures that have created this person that we look up to because it doesn't just take wins one win after another. He himself said, I grew from my trauma. I learned there were good things that came out of those experiences. And we all have to understand that, that our heroes are not just the wins. They're also the losses. The coolest part about Nate's life is that he's only 40 years old and it's far from over. He has so much life ahead of him to do even more incredible things. And one of those things is he's decided to help both players and soldiers making the move into civilian life with a nonprofit organization called Merging Vets and Players. I co-founded it in 2015 with Jay Glazer. So we just hit our five-year anniversary in December and we bring together combat vets and former professional athletes and help them find purpose, identity, uh, service again, you know, that team, that locker room when the uniform comes off, because that's the number one thing, you know, you miss a camaraderie. The number one thing I feel like people, both veterans and athletes say is they, I just miss the guys. I miss the locker room. You know, I miss that. Of course they miss the game. They miss playing, but like, that's the biggest thing, that brotherhood and sisterhood as well. Cause there's quite a few women in our program. And so the number one thing we notice, or we found, I guess, is that just that missed sense of belonging. Like, I feel like I just don't belong anymore. And that's what MVP is all about. It's like providing that space, providing that locker room where these men and women can share in that camaraderie again, but also like we have a shared experience, you know, we can relate to one another. Granted, we'd never compare, you know, the battlefield to the ball field. It's not, that's not what it's about, but the locker room and the sacrifice it takes to be elite is very similar. You know, you have to put a lot into that and you have to give up a lot to get to where, to get to that place. And so that, yeah, that's really it. It's like, it's recognizing who we are and that, that uniform, that team, the game, um, the military, that was all a part of who, we, you know, of, of still who we are, but who we were. Um, and there's pieces of that we take moving forward. But, you know, you're not the uniform you wore. You're the person that put that uniform on and the person that did sacrifice so much to get to that level. And you're still that person. You know, you still have that value. 
Well, I just want to thank uh, my my co-star, Dr. Diane McIntosh, for her questions and all her insight today. And uh, especially a huge thanks to Nate Boyer for sharing his story and his his life experiences. Absolutely incredible, an incredible human being, uh, someone to look up to and and be inspired by every day. So thank you so much for for being here, Nate, and and thank you for sharing all your wonderful stories and and insights and really just giving us hope that the world can be a better place. I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Thanks, guys. 